trust me, I'm like a smart person. From The Conversation, this is Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast where we ask academic experts to surprise, delight and inform us with their research. I'm Sananda Cray. This is the news from the ABC, read by Paul McClive. Here are the headlines. In 1960s Australia, the news was reporting on the Freedom Rides, The Freedom Rides was an event that happened in the 1960s, led out of Sydney with a group of activists and Aboriginal people that brought, I guess, awareness around the plight of many communities in Western New South Wales and the continued segregation in shops. And it sort of culminated in a visit to Moree. That's Kirsten Thorpe, a Warramai woman and professional archivist. I'm a senior researcher at the Jambana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research at UTS. Kirsten Thorpe is now a researcher at the University of Technology, Sydney. But a few years ago, she was working at the State Library of New South Wales. When she started trying to pull together some archival material about the Freedom Rides... We built a partnership with the Dian Centre that is in Mori, which is really a local community keeping place. And uh, as part of that partnership, we not only had the exhibition in Sydney, but we were able to return the, commu- the images to community members in Mori. And it was so significant because at that time, um, members of the Mori community weren't allowed in any public buildings. So, for example, the local swimming pool was out of bounds for Aboriginal people. And the Freedom Rides were able to bring this public awareness and consciousness to that um, movement and really make changes in terms of um, local people being able to have a place in the community. I suppose the, the photos that we sent up to Dian had been taken by the Tribune, the newspaper, the Tribune, the Communist Party newspaper, and their photographers had travelled with the Freedom Rides, I think, and had documented it. That's Richard Neville. Yes, my name is Richard Neville and I am the Mitchell Librarian and Director of Education and Scholarship at the State Library of New South Wales. And so it was a set of negatives that we'd not done much with, but all of a sudden this very um, small, I don't know how many there were, sort of 30 or 40 negatives had an importance and a kind of um, a trajectory that was completely surprising to us. So Richard and Kirsten are busy working away with this community centre in Moree, digging up archival material from their collection and sharing it with another institution and another community. But how do you actually do that in practice? Do you send in photos over the post? Do you just email stuff to people? And what happens after the exhibition's over? What do you do if that exhibition inspires more people to come forward with even more important historical material or accounts of what happened at the time? It, it did mean that even when we had people come down at the opening of the exhibition, they were telling their story. I mean, all these stories just emerged, just started pouring out of people what it was like on the missions, what it was like at the time, even really people from Moree talking about their life in Moree rather than the Freedom Rides. But it was just this catalyst for a whole conversation, which has been really interesting. But as, as Kirsten says, at the time, it all just potentially just dissipates into the into the ether again after the excitement of the exhibition. So our challenge is to find some way of ensuring that those stories are maintained and collected and put together in such a way that the great um, impact that that exhibition had at the time can be captured and, and the records maintained. 
That question of how do we keep track of really important information from Australian history, and especially from Australian Indigenous history, is what today's episode is all about. Photos, original footage, audio, videos, songs, stories of community members sharing their take on what happened at the time, or responding to the archival material, all of that important story. Is there some way of holding on to it that is able to be accessed by people from all walks of life, not just people who work in museums? Is there a way of storing it that's culturally sensitive to the needs of Indigenous communities and gives Indigenous people a bit more ownership than they traditionally have had about the way their stories are told and the way their histories are presented? That's where Mukatu comes in. Mukatu, that's M-U-K-U-R-T-U, is a content management system, or CMS. And I know that sounds like a mouthful, so what does it actually mean in practice? It's always a topic of much confusion for people, um, but basically I would describe the Mukatu project as uh, a tool that facilitates Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to manage their digital heritage in ways that meets their local needs. A grassroots project, and basically it is both looking back at history in terms of connecting with major cultural institutions to reclaim heritage and to, I guess, expand that um, make it more vibrant in a local context, but it's actually also about collecting into the future. It is a system that anyone can use for free to create a website showcasing photos, audio, video, language word lists, or any other kind of digital archival content. And it's custom built with Indigenous people and communities in mind. If you go on its website, it says that Mukatu is a Waramungu word meaning dilly bag, or a safekeeping place for sacred materials. It's a free, mobile and open source platform built with Indigenous communities to manage and share digital cultural heritage. In short, it's a way for Indigenous groups and people to build a website that shows online collections of archival material, presented in a way that they'd like it to be presented. It's the kind of thing that would have been really useful when Kirsten Thorpe and Richard Neville were pulling together all that collection of materials about the Freedom Rides. So the Dian Centre have, they've been collecting this material, the State Library returned that, but we at that time didn't have a system like Mokutu, so we were doing things like sending um, USB copies up and printing them, whereas in the future if we were to embark on a project like that we could actually transfer that in ways and have people respond much more vibrantly in terms of video and connecting the stories to the images in ways that's much more sustainable. And I know um, in terms of the relationship with Dian, they continue to exhibit the photos and people keep coming in and talking about them. So they're a really significant local resource. Kirsten Thorpe is now a researcher at UTS. And one of the many hats that she wears now is being part of the Mukutu project and finding ways to make it available for Indigenous groups and people in Australia to tell their stories. So that means that some material might be open to public access and freely available like the State Library website or the UTS website. But then there are layers behind that where communities can actually put protocols and controls around information so that not everything is shareable. But in the longer view, it's also about giving people the skills to manage their digital heritage over the long term. Um, You know, how do you care for things for the next 25, 50 years in the digital domain? So whilst it is a website, there's a lot of other work happening in the background that's very much about capacity building for Aboriginal communities to take control of their heritage. 
So the state libraries got involved because it can provide that foundational bit of um, technology that's required to build the Mercatu project. Now the library has very rich collections of Indigenous material, but they're largely Europeans talking about Indigenous people. So I suppose we see this as one way of flipping it a bit so that, from our perspective, as an important way that our collections can meet communities in a, in a kind of place where they can own and then deal with and, and, and really comment on our, what we have. So Because, I mean, libraries are about long term. You know, it's not just about the next five years or till the next technology comes along. A, a collecting institution like this sees its mandate as to the next 100 years kind of thing. So it's important that there's that kind of sense of stability and permanence in what we deliver. Kirsten, could you give an example of how it might be used? So it could be a matter of coming to a place like the State Library and getting a word list that was written in the 1890s by a surveyor or an official in their capacity and taking that back to community and having people respond to that. So you can do face-to-face recording or voiceover, or you can actually create an additional record that I guess in some ways, if the material is incorrect, people can come in and have their say on that. And at the same time, they can add additional resources to really highlight that work and maybe even use it in a school educational setting. For me at UTS it's also about what's happening with researchers going out and working with communities because one of the things as Richard had said you know if you're talking in the long term you're talking 50 100 years you end up seeing this cyclical patterns that happen where people aren't looking after their content in the right way and it goes missing or you know it's sitting on someone's cupboard so I guess we see this as a real intervention in the beginning to support and provide sustainability around those projects. So at UTS, we're also looking to work with researchers around research data management. And the really important thing with that is being able to give copies of material straight back to communities. So they're not waiting sort of the 20 years, where did that researcher go? But they have it as a local resource. Uh, Yeah, I think language, cultural revitalization, the exhibitions that happen locally. This is a place that I think Mukatu itself is the whole conception of that idea is a safekeeping place for digital heritage. So it really is about building that future from the point that material is created. So say, for example, there was a, a word collection in the library, somebody from community could come and you know look at that um, and then feed that into a website that they're managing using this content management system called Mukatu. And as you say, you know, get responses from community, correct the record, and then have their own online collection that is, um, you know, much more true to their relationship with that word list or that particular artifact for that particular community. Have I yeah. so have I sort of got that right or have I? Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things that happens now and having worked previously at the State Library, Mukatu is a, a it is a content management system, but it's actually building about building relationships and trust. And that happens all the time anyway with people visiting the reading room. And often people will leave with a piece of paper, they'll go back and circulate that in a community context. But all that enriched knowledge, if it is to be shared or if people want it to be shared it doesn't ever come back to the library um, unless you're explicitly asking the question so the Mukti project really is about being able to say to people you've taken that stuff but if you would like it to come back in please let us know and sometimes it might be that people have recorded amazing stories that can be showcased and highlighted to broad national audiences and other times it can be material that is really offensive or derogatory or is simply untrue. So I think those multitude of responses, a system like this can manage that through the right protocols in the right way. We have a lot of material 
by Europeans about Aboriginal people and very little of Aboriginal people's own reactions to our sorts of material. But it's also looking after material, taking in material, managing material and describing it is quite... It's, it's not people self-manage their own archives, often very poorly, and that's why a lot of it disappears. So part of our mission, I suppose, in a way, is to provide that foundational understanding of what needs to happen to make sure it's described properly, to make sure that the kinds of things you need to ensure that it will be there for the next generation. Or for, It's a really important thing that everyone, you know, it's not just Aboriginal, people generally don't understand how to look after their own data. So, And I suppose the other thing for a lot of Aboriginal people, you know, this is a very colonial institution. You know, you look at the front of it, it's sandstone, if people can see, you know, in Sydney it's this huge sandstone edifice. And it's not a welcoming place to Aboriginal people and to, to many people who don't have a great sense of information, literacy or familiarity with those kinds of things. So it is a way of trying to build these trust relationships that can happen in a kind of safe place um, and hopefully people will gradually feel more comfortable about engaging with the library, engaging with our collections, and also adding to their own. I mean, I remember a guy telling me he was from Parks and he'd recorded some of his um, elders' songs on his mobile phone. And uh, these were old guys and these were kind of some of the last songs. He lost his phone and the men had gone and that's it. You know, that's those songs have gone. And... Um, had there been something like, I mean, this was some years ago, but had there been something like this, he could have actually put these those songs into this system and we would still have them. So it's a very live issue that pertains, I think, to many people's stories, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, and I think libraries are very good at recording people who know how to record themselves, um, and we need to obviously record... There's a lot more to Australia than people who know how to record themselves, so we need to be are trying to address 220-odd years of lack of genuine encounter and engagement with Aboriginal people and their stories. And, you know, it's profoundly important, I think. Richard's point about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander being observed and, you know, the the colonial gaze that was part of the production of records, it, it really is evident in the historic collections that we have. So for me, the Mukatu Project, it's really about that response and it's about people being able to have voice and to be represented in our national collecting institutions. And and I think people always think that, you know, someone else is going to look after their history or it's always down the track. But the idea that you create history now for the future to me is really powerful. I think that, you know, looking at the youth movements or protests that are happening, the vibrancy and activism that occurs nationally, these kind of digital systems enable a much more vibrant history to be captured than one that we wait for someone to come in and collect boxes at the end and curate that so it's it's about Aboriginal people having agency I guess over history telling and to be able to represent that in the right way and, and I think Richard has also mentioned being able to describe content in the right way for the future we see in a lot of our major collecting institutions that material is really offensive so not only is the building really intimidating to walk into you finally make it through the door or you make it to the website and you find the content that you want and then you're you encounter material that actually describes your family or community in ways that doesn't represent the truth or isn't respectful to the resilience that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have had over the years.
Theoretically, I suppose anybody could start a, a WordPress site and add photos, audio, digital records there. So what gap is Mukatu filling? Why is it that this CMS is needed and that existing tools aren't necessarily going to get the job done? From our perspective, I think we add that little bit of extra support in terms of looking at the long view. So whilst it's great to do websites locally, the questions that we'll be asking is what will happen to this in five years? The rights management is really important to us so that you actually talk to people about what access looks like into the future. So having a gain, you know, in 25 years, if someone wanted to republish this, is it something that can be done? And the MOOC2 CMS has an associated project called local context that really looks at a licensing system. So we're really excited about that level of attribution and control over cultural heritage. So I think we'll always be encouraging people to do the, you know, the local storytelling, but, and we, we also, we don't necessarily want people to just use the Mukatu CMS because it, it is a technology, a tool. If something else works for people, we also want to talk about the preservation needs. Digital preservation is a really complex area, so being able to talk to people about that as well. I suppose what we would say about something like Mukatu, that having the the foundational support of an institution such as the State Library with a commitment to its ongoing preservation does mean that there's much more likelihood that this thing will be available in 100 years' time. The WordPress site, you know, the, the code will change or something will change, the site will drop off and you get your, you know, your 404 link kind of thing happening. The intention with something like Mercatu having proper standards sitting underneath it, having the support of a State Library, I mean, we understand that we aren't, trying to control the content or what is in it we are saying that we are just providing the platform on which people can operate clearly if we can absorb some of the collection some of the material in there that is relevant to our collections and we have permissions to do so then we would very much like to do that but there's a lot of really really boring stuff about maintaining websites and preservation you know digital preservation and people and there's no way that someone in a community is any community anywhere is going to be able to kind of keep up with that so it is in important that a we have the right relationships with the communities and people who want to use this system but b that we can say that this is something we are going to commit to the long-term preservation of often what happens with some of these sites is that people get you know the people who are championing them move on or or whatever and the whole thing just falls into a heap and then everything gets lost so part of what we feel our duty as a a state organization is to make that commitment to its long-term support Can you explain how cultural systems that might pertain to restrictions around certain materials might intersect with what you're talking about here with the Mukutu project? I guess retrospectively and looking at historic collections, people didn't necessarily think about, you know, either something was opened or it was closed. It might have sat in someone's cupboard and only came out to the right people at the right time. Traditionally in libraries and archives, you have a system either that people can come into a reading room and request content, but it doesn't have often differentiated levels of access. So Mukatu really enables at a granular level. It might be the case that there is content that relates to mourning and, you know, every culture has rules and rituals around those processes. So in that case, material could be closed based whether it's on gender or family ties or relationships. I think the other thing that we see in particularly 
in dealing with colonial collections is that they do, do still cause trauma. So there is a lot of material that we're seeing a lot of public debate at the moment about the evidence of massacres and a lot of that material exists in the major collecting institutions. So for me, it's also about the way that people engage online, that online sometimes is just, you know, you search, you discover, and then you have access. So what might be some of the protocols that actually give people the space to reflect or to understand that they're going to be accessing material that could be really sad, it could be really offensive. And really that process, it is determined by the communities that need to determine that and they make the rules. It's not the institution. In the past, the institution would be the decision maker. So Muktu does the, the gendered sort of deceased warnings and you can go down to a page level just to let people know that the material might be culturally sensitive or need protocols attached to it. Leading scholars like Terry Jenke have developed frameworks around considerations of ICIP and one of the important areas that that will help all of us work through is both attribution around Indigenous knowledge and if there's anything that might be commercialised that there's also attribution and payment for Indigenous knowledges that are informing other work. So someone like Uncle Bruce Pascoe who's a part of the team at Jumbana at UTS is talking about Indigenous agriculture so there's you know a lot of people who are using Indigenous food sources now so we need to make sure that any Indigenous knowledges are protected for the benefit of community and not put into a commercial space that, again, you know, we see so much in the colonial institutions that it was about the capture and sometimes misuse of information. So we want to make sure into the future that we're looking after things in the right way. I mean, the potential for this issue around um, Indigenous intellectual property is one can only see escalating in terms of the way we have to deal with it because so many more sources are going to be opened up once we begin to do uh, more manuscript collections or you know diaries and journals and so on. I mean, a lot of Europeans were fascinated by Aboriginal culture, so they wrote a lot about it. Someone like Bruce Pascoe, Uncle Bruce, has obviously picked up on a few of the key texts or many of them, but there's probably a lot more that's going to come out of all this work once the digitisation project's begin to reveal themselves and I think that's going to be a really interesting space that we'll need to be thinking about too. When I go to the Mukatu website and I look at the examples a lot of them seem to hail from North America. What's the reason for that? Why not more Australian examples on there? What we probably see in the US is a lot more funding and support going to this area and that's why we feel really fortunate to be connected through the Mukatu hub back to Washington State Uni and their partner hubs which are across the US. You know, we hope to bring that work here but we really need to see a reinvestment in resources in this area. So hopefully in terms of bringing it to Australia we won't need to learn and go through the same lessons that they've had. So in some ways we're jumping in um, with a bright new future for Australia but we definitely definitely need to see a commitment around resourcing for this. The Pasmacotti tribe in North America are using Mukatu. Can you talk a little bit about the Pasmacotti example that was profiled in um, the New Yorker recently? Yeah, we've been really interested. We've been hearing about the Library of Congress working with the Pasmacotti on the return of cultural heritage. So from what I understand, the Smithsonian held wax cylinder recordings of the Pasmacotti. And not only is this about the digital repatriation of the material, 
but quite a landmark moment occurred where the Library of Congress changed the copyright from the original recorder. So often Indigenous people have been recorded by, you know, whether it's ethnomusicologists or anthropologists, and copyright automatically went to the creator of the record. So in the case of the Pasmaquoddy, it was significant that there has been the return and the enhancement of stories and song, but quite a monumental shift in terms of seeing a cultural institution change the ownership in the systems. Um, So we're really excited to see the influence on the Australian sector in that way because I'm sure a lot of communities would like to have their family members and ancestors acknowledged as the rightful owners of that material. How does Mokotu fit into the broader debate around repatriation of stolen Indigenous artefacts? I mean, there's been such activism across, you know, so many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from across Australia who have really led this movement throughout our time. So all of us that come to the glam sector now really are riding on the work that happened from that advocacy. But one of our biggest challenges is that we don't know where material is. So you have an institution like the State Library or a State Archive um, who have a, a sense of obligation to actually let people know what is in their collections, but others aren't as helpful and so freely offering of information on what they have and we see that internationally in terms of material that was traded. So for me, my family are Waramai from Port Stephens, I would love to know if there are photos of my grandmother or if there are objects that could be sent back to be in the care of Waramai people. But it is, even if material is available, it's really difficult to find it. We have, our material is dispersed um, across those major institutions. So Mukatu really is the start of a conversation and digital repatriation isn't the same as physical repatriation, but I guess it is an opener to start to talk about the rights, the ownership, the way it's described and cared for. And hopefully in the future, we'll see much more of a vibrant network of collecting institutions that aren't just in the major cities. Hopefully we'll see that there are both regional and local centres that can care for culture. I think from the library's perspective, uh, when people talk about repatriation, they often mean possibly cultural objects. Uh, Libraries tend to be pretty much paper-based collections, so a lot of what we have is paper-based language lists and, and, and material like that. I think many communities don't know we have the material, so that kind of discovery of material is a really important thing and often, I believe, sort of surprised and somewhat disturbed often to find that this enormous institution in the city has something that they feel rightfully belongs to them. So there is that point of negotiation, which I suppose is where the trust comes into it. I think, you know, we um, things like the George Augustus Robinson Diaries, which the library has, um, he was known as the conciliator of Aborigines down in uh, Tasmania. He's known principally through a transcription of those diaries by a man called uh, in Dr Plomley. And when you look at it, it's this linear 800-page fat tome with the text is all the same. And But when you actually go down and experience the diaries themselves, um, they're different shapes, they're different sizes, they're scrawled. I mean, the physicality of them adds another dimension to it. So the kind of conversations we need to have around communities who relate to those collections, um, it's pretty profound because it's not, you know, most people experience Robinson through a European text, but the stuff itself is still the European text, but just the fact he was scrawling words all over, making little drawings as he was going along, and it adds a kind of sense of humanness 
to the experience, as awful as Robinson's behaviour was, I mean, here are these things that are profoundly moving. And so I suppose those kinds of conversations we need to be being much more open to. Um, if community is going to come and see the material we have, then there often has to be a, you know, it can be moving and upsetting. And so we have to be very mindful of just the experience that will unfold when people see this, even these collections will stay within the library, but the experience of communities engaging with them has to be handled respectfully and, and with understanding of the kind of the impact. And I think often from, you know, as a white European male kind of, it, it's not immediately obvious to the library, I think, and to the sector generally, but it is getting much better at understanding the requirements that one needs, that we need to be putting in place. And, that, you know, we just can't, it's just not like another archive. It actually has something much more profound sitting underneath it. So we need to be respectful of that. I had a student contact me last week from a regional centre saying I want to volunteer. Um, so I think there, there will be many ways. Um, we will be launching a website in the near future to release the work of the hub and to talk about the relationships that we're building. But we, we are after help from people. So if there are, I know in terms of the world of online transcription, there are a lot of people who at home have a little bit of spare time to do that work. We're all always looking for volunteers mm -hmm. in that process. But as well, for us we need we need government to be seeing this and to be helping us with resources so that we can there's a whole side of this work that's about community capacity building so doing online and face-to-face -face training around digital curation and preservation so we will be knocking on the door of funders as well to get support for the state library of new south wales it's it has been identified as a critical project that we obviously have been heavily invested in in terms of the staff uh, that we've put onto the project. Um, as Kirsten says, money is always the issue that we need to be addressing. Uh, clearly the library itself can maintain its commitment to uh, Mercatu, but I think we do need to be exploring how we can build things like the capacity of communities to engage. And that is not cheap. I mean, it is actually something that's quite a complex process. And I think people often think digital digital technology is the panacea to all our ills. And really, it's, it's a tool that requires certain skill sets and certain understandings. And until you master those, the technologies can be good or bad. So it's really building capacity, I think, in communities, building an understanding in government, hopefully, we'll still be going in 100 years' time. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation where we ask academic experts to surprise, delight and inform us with their research. Today's episode was produced by me, Sananda Cray, and our theme beats are by Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks, and we've used music on this episode from Free Music Archive. You can see a full list of audio credits on our website at theconversation.com.